This is Subjects in Process, a podcast where we explore the limits of our knowledge, try to understand the things we take for granted, and work to see things from new points of view. I'm Jeff. And I'm Jonathan. So, um, last time we talked mostly about uh, the concept of alienation, and um, and so and then we touched mentioned at the end that we wanted to discuss barriers to entry, which uh, is a term that capitalists talk about as something that you need to manage to ensure free and fair markets. And so, my my hypothesis is that um, a lot of the negative results that we see in our in our world and that get kind of attached to the idea of capitalism are the product of barriers to entry and that traditional economics or even the ideas of capitalism who are very concerned with this idea of barriers to entry can actually give us valuable insight in how to make our world more fair and to make our work more fulfilling, um, mitigating some of the issues of alienation even, and uh, some of the other key issues that result from uh, markets where we are not paying attention to barriers to entry, right? So mitigating that can mitigate a lot of other issues. Uh, But then I think there are also lots of other barriers to entry that I don't really hear talked about by traditional economists. So I'm also interested in touching on some of those. So I think that's I think that's maybe sounds... a high level view of kind of some of what we want to talk about today. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it would be great for us to start by um, even unpacking barriers to entry uh, as an idea. It was interesting uh, on the Wikipedia article. Yes. Uh, they talk about the sort of first thing they talk about is how uh, divisive the definition is they don't have a def like there's not a really a single mm-hmm. definition and economists sort of are all over the place in terms of trying to trying to do that so uh, <laughs> anyway so the 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 thing about barriers to entry is that um i when i first heard that term from you i think i thought to myself is barriers to entry just like like i i didn't realize that it meant barriers to entry into the market like that it had to do with right with like being, yeah so it's, being it's unable about, to get in yeah the idea is and uh, it's it's about getting into business right and doing something in the market to produce services for others and yeah. and now we think of businesses as being very separate from individuals but it does tie into that individual level because the idea would be and this is maybe just kind of like uh, we'll probably get into this more later, but when you are an employee, right? The alternative to that, if you don't want to be an employee, you could go out and do the work without, you know, you could leave your boss and go do your own thing. Right. But yes. There's barriers potentially to you doing that. And, yeah. um, and capitalists always want to reduce those barriers so that people kind of maximize people's ability to to choose and you know how they want to participate. Well, one of the things I was seeing was that um, there's these co- this concept of perfect competition, 
uh, and natural monopoly. And sort of perfect competition comes about when you have low barriers to entry and low barriers to exit. Um, oh, interesting. Barriers and, to uh, exit. I haven't even Well, heard barriers that. to exit is really interesting. So like something like uh, retail is often cited as having a low barrier to entry and a low barrier to exit. Okay. But something like uh, telecommunications mm-hmm. has a high barrier to entry and a high barrier to exit, mm. um, which makes sense when you think, okay, yeah, you're right. You've got all of this infrastructure in place. And so the it's very hard for a telecommunications uh, enterprise to like be cast out of the market because of market forces essentially right. right because they've got all of this stuff there that's sort of keeping them afloat so so a question there so with the barriers to exit uh is it is it kind of thought of as a challenge for that telecommunications co- uh, company where you know it's like joining the mafia once you're in it you're kind of stuck there or is it um, more like this too big to fail concept where they actually it's beneficial for them to have high barriers to exit because it means other people don't want them to fail right yeah i don't i don't really know i i uh, i hadn't seen the term barriers to exit until i looked at the wikipedia yeah. okay yeah exactly uh, and michael porter apparently is the guy who talks about uh, these different kinds of markets where yep. you have high or low and so like something like consulting is a high barrier to entry but a low exit barrier which uh, i yeah. think just means you know it's it is easy to fail mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but a good uh i guess a free market is a place where it's okay for businesses to fail all the time mm-hmm. because the uh the impact of needing of getting back into the market yes is not as high right there's not a it's not a it's not a yeah. high entry area yeah idea. and it- and, and you actually, you kind of hear that sentiment expressed in like tech. They talk a lot about this idea right. of fail fast, right? So you just test something out. You want to get it out there and see what works. And then when it fails, you, you, you know, the only failure is the failure you fail to learn from, right? Man. So then you can yeah. learn from it and then try the next thing, right? You know, see, improve the idea, refine it, move right. on to the next one. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So I, yeah, I definitely haven't heard about barriers to exit, but yes, capitalists want to promote markets with these low barriers, um, which is kind of like maximizing people's freedom in how they want to participate. And so that's where I think a lot of the time, you know, the cons- our concerns with how the world operates is we see abuse of power. We see kind of people uh, manipulating or uh, pushing other people around due to their um, their current existing position. And that, you know, in a sense is very, when someone else can't come in to compete with you, then they have this leverage and it's a kind of power that then they can abuse. But if yeah. there are these, if there aren't barriers, then uh, then they don't have that ability to, um, leverage their power um, and right. manipulate the situation because yeah. other people can just, they can make the free choice to get out of there. I don't want to have anything to do with this. Right. Um, I mean, it was interesting to see that uh, at least the economists I was looking at and not just in Wikipedia, but also not in like books um, who they were, they were talking about there being these different kinds of barriers to entry because there are those what they call strategic barriers to entry, which have to do with that more deliberate 
you know, how do I, you know, I'm Microsoft in the nineties. Yeah. How do I make it very hard for Netscape to exist yes, so that I it, can only do Internet Explorer? And so what I do is I stick Internet Explorer on every copy of Windows mm-hmm. and I'm creating a barrier to entry for Netscape yep. um, that eventually get leads to an antitrust suit. Um, <laughs> that's right. And, and so that's the strategic side. But then there's also uh, structural barriers to entry, which have to do with sort of the inherent nature of of the market, like an incumbent someone who's already in the market and has already built a bunch of economies of scale and that kind of thing, they have a natural advantage over a competitor, a new competitor. And they've, that natural advantage has created uh, a barrier to entry um, that I guess could be dealt with in some way, do you think? Or Yeah. So, I mean, so that's where a big part, a, a thing I'm interested in talking about is the, the, cost or challenges of coordination, right? So I think we're all really familiar with this idea of uh, economies of scale, but I think what doesn't get talked about is the challenges of scale. And right. the so, so a lot of the time, the new person, the new person coming in can actually be, they're smaller, which can make them way more nimble and adaptable. And so, so they're the, the question is, so if there really is this massive advantage to economies of scale, people talk about that as um, a natural monopoly where, um, but the, the proposal is that there's actually very few real natural monopolies. So I don't know if we want to dive right into an example, but one mm-hmm. of them is that uh, watched a guy mentioned in a little video is... <clears throat> provision of cable you know to your right. television is this um was was thought to be this uh case of a natural monopoly right so somebody has to pay for putting these cables in the ground to all of these different houses and that's a very expensive endeavor and so if you have a whole bunch of people all competing right let's just say uh the cost of running the service is very low but it costs $10,000 a house to set up all these cables. So if you have one company doing it, they put in all these cables at $10,000 a pop at the house. And then, so it's a city of a hundred thousand people. And so now they've done all these cables and they can then just provide cable for everyone at quite a cheap price because over time they're going to be able to recoup that installation cost. So this was thought to be the case of a natural monopoly and is a reason why many cities gave total rights to one company to be, to to provide it because they didn't want to set up the situation where all these companies were paying all these upfront costs. And as they're all investing they're sudden in the end, they're not actually able to recoup that money and they have to increase their prices dramatically mm. to uh, try and get to recoup those massive costs. Cause they put in the cable for a hundred thousand people in the city, yeah. but then they're only getting 10% of the customers. Right. Yes. Um, so, so comes, if, if yeah. something like, would something like that be like, if you, cause I mean, like obviously from a municipal perspective, you'd also don't want like four companies ripping up things over and over again and yes. the permitting processes and all those sorts of things yes. that would result from that. Yeah. Do you know if there are instances where a city would say, okay, we're going to subsidize this process and you're going to do it. So you do get a job out of this, mm-hmm. but you have to make 
this accessible to any, like to create competition after the fact, mm-hmm. we're going to make it so that this is just a regular job. You don't get like, it's not going to cost the company extra to install all this work mm-hmm. and install everything. But then uh, any company could end up using those cables. So I don't, I don't know about the details of this situation. There for sure are examples of arrangements like that, where the the city kind of sets up the infrastructure, and then you know there's like some maybe some small fee, but multiple companies can use it. So that's like an example of how to get around this. Um, in in the example that this guy gave, he actually just gave examples of some cities where they said, okay, we're not going to give out just one contract, we're going to give out two. And mm. so it doubled those upfront costs, right? Which then the fear is that that's going to increase the prices for your citizens, for the people, but it didn't, right? It actually resulted in uh, lower costs in the cities that allowed multiple uh, people in. And that's just evidence of the fact that the people, when they only awarded the contract to one, suddenly there's an absolute barrier to entry to any competition. And then those companies were able to leverage that to charge higher prices and make more money, right? Which is the problem with a monopoly. Right. So, right. Interesting. So that's this, the situation where sometimes like things generally, there aren't many natural monopolies and competitors actually can come in and, and uh, profitably compete. And, right. and, um, and then, yeah. So, and then, uh, yeah. And so that I'm sure there are yeah lots of examples, but then there also, there's just going to be like, how do you award contracts? Yeah, so I guess the idea is that there are not many natural monopolies and that there are cases where there are these economies of scale, but uh, you don't often see people who are so big that they are suddenly like, oh, anyone can try and compete with us. We're fine. We've got, we're so big. We're, you know, what you actually see is big people who are so big that then they start to lobby the government and find all kinds of ways of strategically increasing the barriers to entry because they're actually always afraid of competition right and so when there's barrier when there's a natural monopoly you just wouldn't be afraid of competition and right uh, right yeah yeah Yeah, that's it's interesting to think i mean the thing i do enjoy about this is even just trying to think of all the different examples right like and and i mean also from within it you know any companies that you've worked at over the years, you see the ways in which you you sometimes try to create barriers to entry mm-hmm. or you try to leverage barriers to entry or or maybe like would a capital would I mean using that word capitalist, but would yeah, someone who's right. sort of pro-capitalism, mm-hmm. would they uh ideally be someone who's also like, I want to minimize barriers to entry? Absolutely. Yes. So that's a big even if a- it's to my own disadvantage from a individual like yes that would be the idea you know i mean it's just like rich people who favor higher taxes right you know it's like right ideological you know they they want they're interested in you know doing their life and making their money however they make their money but their um, mental ideological structure is to say right and this is a big case of where and i i'm not sure if i've said this before but i think it's just a mistake often to view the like the government being in bed with big business like this is a thing and i think people on the left sometimes think 
that conservatives or people on the right are like in favor of this. But I think it's just worth remembering that in the same way the left is continually disappointed with their representatives for failing to right. uh, implement structural reforms, people on the right are generally all like really, really disappointed with all their representatives right. because they end up being in bed with big business instead of promoting yeah. low barriers to entry and efficient markets, et cetera. I was, um, lis- I was listening to this interesting uh, talk by a philosopher, theologian named John Milbank, and he, uh, he's talking about neoliberalism, um, which neoliberalism, state capitalism, all of those things sound similar. I think they all kind of overlap with each other. Uh, interestingly, Hayek plays a role in the creation of neoliberalism. Absolutely. Uh, oh, for sure, for sure. Interesting. Well, I mean, and again, like I always, I always want these terms defined, right? right. Because I do worry that people um, just take a basket of things they don't like, and then they huck this label on them, and they're not really related to anything unified right. in the world. But, and so neoliberalism is another interesting one. So, and it's it's like one one of the, the way that. John Milbank framed it was that uh, neoliberalism is sort of the situation where you have people who want very low, uh, uh, what is it, social restrictions, but high economic restrictions. They're Mm -hmm. often, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's low. Essentially, his his point was they tend to be, don't don't tell me what to do with my money. Yep. Um, and, uh, and also I, I want to do whatever I want. <laughs> yes. Yes. So like, so the, these in theory, these would be people who are saying wealthy people. Yes. Yes. So, well, wealthy people, I mean, but you could be ideologically committed to this as a, a not wealthy person. Like the right. idea, the idea is that most of the government intervention actually ends up doing more harm than good and creating barriers to entry. And so their idea is the government should stay out of it. And this is, they believe, I mean, uh, that this is actually what ends up being better for everyone. So that would be, that would be the charitable, the charitable thing. And, and as we've talked about, it's, it's always important to acknowledge there are people who are just selfish and uh, aren't interested in it because they think it's good for the world. They're just interested in it because it's good for them. And that's, that's a real thing that's that's out there but just um i guess i don't i doubt there are people who are self-identifying as neoliberals and saying i want this because it's good for me and f everybody else right but right. maybe there's people who would be honest enough to say that i'm not sure but, right um um okay so barriers to entry we're kind of talking about specifically more economic the economic ones at this yeah, point. yeah. Well, I mean, and I think the I I don't even know if we strictly want to separate those, but let's start out with some of these classic examples. And I have a bunch written down that we can just kind yep. of go through yep. that will illustrate some of those, right? So, yep. the uh, one that has is generally thought to be kind of like the cable company, but maybe kind of stays uh, relevant is the idea of water, right? So the installation mm. of all the networks and pipes and everything. So that's maybe a case of a natural monopoly and economies of scale. Another one that I someone said was, uh, so unique access to a resource creates barriers to entry for someone else who doesn't have that, right? And right. 
So patents are a classic example, right? So if there's a patent on something, someone else can't come in and right. use that. Uh, like but a CD-ROM. Yeah, exactly. And so, and that's, and that's a case where, you know, I like the idea of patents, although the way they work now, because they're so expensive and it just basically means like patents only protect, protect giant companies and mm. there's no real room for the garage inventor to protect his. So, but the idea right. of patents, I love that, right? Ross like it, Taylor has a patent, at least I one. Maybe, maybe he has two. I don't know. Uh, he has at least one. Which is very cool. And I mean, yeah, I has to do with this like engine where the rotors meet each other on this unique angle and it's supposed to be it's, way better. But I mean, I think, that's a. Yeah, Nate put a video out about oh, it. Oh, did I they? Think. Very yeah, cool. Like I a while ago. But. Yeah, I remember talking to him about it and just being blown away about uh, like how insanely brilliant that man is, you know, and it had to do with just like imagining interlocking shapes in his head right. which like mathematicians and engineers told him was impossible and he's right. like no i already see it i've actually built it in my head already <laughs> um but it's also a great example of the problem with the patents because after he finally got his patent done right and there's this whole process and as he's doing the process of documenting um this new engine etc he's of course radically improved the whole concept in his mind right and so by yes. the time he was done he said i need a new patent i've right. got this way better right. thing in my head now and yes. i can't at that point i don't know where that went but i know nate was like are you kidding me like it's <laughs> it's it's a hundred thousand dollar process to go right. through this and, right the um, uh it, it's like i guess with the other side of it be did you ever see that movie that starred i think greg kinnear and it's about the inventor of the intermittent wipers, like windshield wipers. I remember seeing a trailer and thinking it looked super interesting. It's, what but... a hilarious, I haven't seen it, I don't think. I, yeah. I might've seen it, but I don't remember seeing it. Yes. But it's such a funny pr premise for a movie, right? It's like, it's yes. like, what if the wipers just didn't just go back and forth, but they went back and then paused and then went back the other way. Yes. Like, but, and, and wasn't that uh, a true, based on a true yeah, story? Based on a true story. Yeah, and he got screwed over. The guy yes, apparently exactly. got screwed over. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, how does that happen? Like, I guess that's, that's less about patents. That's more about intellectual property, not being respected or not yeah, being, people breaking uh, patents essentially. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's, yeah. So people all the time, yeah, are right. So that's one of the things I think is worth that I want to get to talking about is so a lot of these things like the companies creating barriers to entry, it's actually illegal, right? So right, right. um and and so this is this is an important role for the government is to try and support low barriers to entry so that these markets function effectively. But right. of course, how do you how do you enforce that, right? And so that's right. one of one of the things that I think uh, and you almost capitalists, it feels like they're stuck in a, this like catch 22, where regulation creates a massive burden on industry. So they generally are opposed to regulation. Yeah. Um, but then they also have these specific rules they know are important for functioning markets. And so it's like, if you don't regulate, then those rules get disobeyed. And if you do regulate, you create this massive drag on the system. So right. You know, yeah. So I it is the like because there would also be legitimate barriers to entry in the sense of like it like like patents or like patents, yeah. or like yeah. uh copyright 
or yep. well uh, and so well, yeah. the fun one that actually i was coming to here that and i just kind of got sidetracked because it's similar to patents right is even unique skill right so the the example was whoever came up with the kfc recipe now right. has right who can possibly colonel sanders with, exactly who possibly can compete with kfc when they don't have access to the secret recipe no one can right. make chicken that good and so right so it's unique- like spongebob Again, man alive. Is this going to become the SpongeBob uh, podcast? But I mean, I do hope so. I, I mean, it'd be amazing because yeah. in SpongeBob, the Krabby Patty has a secret formula yes. and Plankton is always trying to get it mm-hmm. and he can't. Mm-hmm. The thing is, and this is something that came out in a more recent movie, that the, the secret, secret recipe is not the secret sauce. It's actually SpongeBob. Uh, like SpongeBob, yes, he's the one who makes the Krabby Patty so special. So yes, and and that's um, and he's not alienated because he somehow like he is invested in the product and somehow like yeah. has this sense of connection yeah. to the yeah. the value that he's providing, right? And exactly. he's so man alive, um, SpongeBob economics according to SpongeBob SquarePants. That would be a I mean, that would probably be uh, popular. Maybe we can make that a, has, U- a YouTube sounds, video about yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> we probably should. Anyway, so unique skill, right? That's, that's um, you know, that's in some ways we would probably think of as a very fair and good barrier to entry, right? You should be rewarded for being good at what you do. And then another example is De Beers, who is the diamond company. Right. And... Uh, I actually wonder how on earth they don't get in trouble, like how they're allowed to do this. But what they've done is they just got a massive amount of money up front yeah. and they bought up um, uh, the majority of the diamond supply in the world. Right. And wow. now uh, they have warehouses and warehouses that are just completely full of diamonds right. and they don't sell them because if they flooded the market, diamonds would become worthless because they're right. just so common right like we'd be like paying people to clean them up off our floors right <laughs> you, you, you'd be paying to get rid of them yeah and so they have and then they just very strongly limit the the release of this which to me right off i mean i again i i don't know enough about exactly what's illegal and i have a good a couple of good examples of cases where people are getting sued right the microsoft was an example right that right. was illegal anti-competitive behavior but yeah. de Beers seems like it should be that and then of right. course there are other people who are selling diamonds and i guess maybe they just they can sell them at that rate they don't yeah there's they would sell them at the same market rate as de Beers because they don't their supply isn't big enough to really affect the market anyway so it's, I it's interesting into- and it's because it's like there's nothing that seems inherently bad about like if you were just thinking oh well hey here's a great way for me to do well in the market i'm just gonna buy all of the rare uh mineral Mm -hmm. that's needed for whatever like Mm -hmm. uh, luke my brother-in-law was uh telling me about how apparently china and the u.s governments own almost all of the material that's used for night vision goggles Oh yeah, and that those that material is actually one of the best uh, products for uh, creating batteries for solar. Oh, interesting. Or maybe not batteries. Maybe it's just solar. Related what to, about solar panels? I think it's solar panels. Yeah, solar panels. Right. Yeah. And so, like this, this crazy, like it, it. 
I mean, that's a government thing where it's like yeah. you have governments who are maybe it's for military purposes, but it's yeah. also I'm sure there's lobby groups, right, that are saying we don't want mm-hmm. solar. And mm-hmm. so they the if there's a way for them to limit the material that's actually available for mm-hmm. making it less expensive. Right. Yes. Like, and um, so lots of that stuff is supposed to be illegal, right? And so it's right. kind of, it's it's a nice thing to just kind of remember, right? Like capitalists in this, these kinds of capitalists who believe in this like low barriers to entry, they're, they have some pretty, these are like nice principles, right? <laughs> they don't want people, they don't want powerful people like abusing their position. They want everybody right. to be able to, you know, go and do their thing. It's so, interesting, though, within like if you if you step away from the theoretical, because I could see lots of people being on board for this. Like, of course, like if if everyone just learned to love their neighbor, then everything would be OK. Right. Like mm-hmm. that that equivalent thing. Right. Like theoretically. Yeah, obviously, if you just like if everyone did unto others what they would have you do unto you, then it, it would be OK. But when you are within it, like from a from a company perspective, right? you're inside the company and you start to say, well, I would actually like to make it so that it's really hard for this person to start up a competitive, a competition against me. Yep. Um, I, my, uh, one of my bosses over the Mm -hmm. years, who's been super influential in in my life, he very famously uh, told, told everyone at the company, never be afraid of competition. It only makes, it'll only make you better. Right. Yeah. Uh, Which is, I think that it that's exactly what you're talking about in terms of that's the right kind of attitude to have. That's going to be the thing that actually, you know, if everybody had that attitude, things would go a lot better, right? Yeah. Um, but I know for me, right, like in terms of I've done marketing and and that yeah. kind of thing, you have that kind of desire to sort of say, what can I do to make it harder for other companies? Yeah. That's part of competition, I guess. Well, so I mean, but there's there's also there's good ways of doing it and there's bad ways of doing it. Right. right. So yeah. when you're trying to create barriers to entry, like developing your workforce as a loyal, skilled workforce, right? That's creates barriers to entry for other people because they do not have access to your experienced and skilled laborers. But that would be a legitimate exactly. Barrier to so entry. that's just what right. I'm saying. There are there are good and bad ways like i like i probably should stop going to other philosophy podcasts and cutting the power cables to their house right like that's i don't know i guess that's is that actually illegal though like i don't think that the government oh the the government doesn't care about philosophers (laughs) yeah i mean exactly i mean uh not even philosophers care about philosophers so i mean the uh yeah so the the competition right so and that's the, the what I would suggest is is that it's not just pie in the sky though because it is literally illegal, right? So right. Yes. you could yes. we could right. So those people who are ideologically committed to this position should be thinking about um, how do we uh, how do we enable effective enforcement of these rules as well, right? And maybe just as like to bring up a couple examples, let's talk about the cases where the the law has kind of come up and but also highlight some of the challenges in enforcing it. So right now, the US government has brought a lawsuit against Facebook. And um, it's a lawsuit against them for buying Instagram. And so but the, the crazy thing is, is that whether or not they are deemed guilty depends on their motivation 
for why they did it. And right. So, so if they bought Instagram to improve the service that they provide, then that's totally okay. But there is an email chain that is, has somehow been, is public and uh, where they talk about how Instagram could be their downfall. It could be the the platform that displaces them, and so oh. the, and and then they bought it. So that's that's like that access to those emails inter inside the uh, the the company is the evidence that they need to actually show that this is not okay. And would that be the sort of thing where uh, obviously, if Joe Schmo from the you know some random programmer sent that email that's not going to be a big deal it's it's it has the, to be someone who is it up. that's saying it kind yeah, of thing it's totally a, yeah that would email matter. thread that the board did or whatever exactly it would have to be someone who has authority to make decisions right it, yeah. that's basically yeah the remember everyone don't write don't write anything in an email that you wouldn't want read out loud in court <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i mean uh, uh that is a rule of thumb to live by <laughs> instance where I had I I had a new boss and um, my boss's boss I had worked with for a long time so my new boss I kind of I knew her boss better than she did and so she was really struggling in that relationship and and so was frequently coming to me for advice on how to manage the relationship and yep. um, and so there were these email threads about it. And then um, my boss's boss, who was a, a strong but sometimes challenging uh, woman, fired my boss and um, and had made the whole case for with cause, et cetera. And after that, my boss was fired, uh, then was allowed to have access to all of her emails. And so then went reading through all of her emails and the discussions that I had had with my boss about her boss. Oh. And, um, and fortunately, like by total fluke, because one of the things at work, I tend to try to take this position of like openness and transparency where I sometimes say things like, you know, you know, like, you know how when I come over and your kids all say to me, Uncle Johnny, can you tell me the story about when you pooped your pants? Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, they talk about it every day. Yeah. And many of my colleagues also know that story, right? <laughs> like it's something I do to just try and create collegial bonds. But anyway, in this case, I came off looking pretty much like an angel. But I, when I realized she had access to those emails, I had went back through and read everything and I was so terrified. Yeah. Anyway, terrible, yeah. terribly but, long aside there. But no, that, I mean, it's, it's part of the, the place where ethics and business and ethics and work interact, right, is, is uh, I, I think the, the thing is, is that sometimes people think that their actions don't necessarily have ethical import in the moment, yes. right? But you, um, and especially in competitive situations, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I've heard that church soccer leagues are among the worst soccer leagues to be part of. They're just 
insane. Like the people in there are just like crazy people and they like yeah. are violent. I am totally opposed to sports in general. So I feel like free to be able to say that, but I've been you know, on like, one of those teams, so I can speak, I can speak to that. That's, you have the wounds to show, <laughs> to show. That, yeah. Um, um, but like, you know, that, whereas if, if we were to approach our work and if, mm-hmm. you know, people who are in leadership in, in, uh, organizations approach it from an ethical perspective, mm-hmm. you know, ideally you would see less of that kind of like, how can I screw this person over? Yes. Right. Well, and, and so one of the interesting things as well, and so, um, oh man, who wrote the book? Ah, uh, Kurt Vonnegut. Um, so he wrote a book about these, uh, people who were at some vacation, uh, place in South America. And then there was this kind of massive oil crisis that brought down the whole global economy. Mm. And, um, and they ended up stranded on an island, right? And of course, it's like this island is uh, being described to kind of mimic the idea of Galapagos Island, right? And so islands, and then and are these places of dramatic kind of evolutionary acceleration because right. you have these they're separated off from the rest yeah. of the world and so then the on the smaller scale there's the opportunity for more changes but then occasionally there'll be land bridges or whatever so there's lots of like mixing and isolation and in this and so then the humans then evolve into being seals and oh. so the 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 book is kind of being narrated from this future uh, reality that you don't know what it is until the end. So, apolo- right. sorry, spoiler alert. Too late. I can <laughs> we can maybe insert one, but um, and the the point, or at least what I took away from the book was how actions become much more problematic when their um, impact is is accentuated dramatically basically like concentration of power is incredibly dangerous and um i think of it Mm -hmm. as like if you were attempting to navigate right uh and you're like setting your compass Mm -hmm. and if you're not going that far and you're a fraction of a degree off right then um then it's not a big deal but if the you know if it's like a you're going really far right you know then then suddenly just being slightly off can have terrible effects. And yes. I think of that a little bit like with where the the choices of any individual are scaled too big. Suddenly you're going to see that on the small scale, that was fine. On the large scale, the consequences can be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Um, and which mm-hmm. is actually, I in a previous episode, I kept saying I have new thoughts about what the heart of the problem of capitalism is. And this is this is what I was hinting at. And we never got right. to it in that well, episode. Maybe, but maybe we'll get to it. Yeah, today. exactly. <laughs> I mean, and we kind of just did. So that's uh, yeah. I got that out. But so Facebook buying Instagram and the kind of the ethics of that, right? And whether it's enforceable or not is um, is very tricky. And so and I think um, on and on top of the not taking those competitive situations 
like like somehow divorcing ethics from that. Mm -hmm. I think that's also both a product of the scale that I was just mentioning, right? Where your action might not be that bad, but the problem is when it's scaled through a massive company, um, it can be much worse. But also I think it can be a problem of alienation where Mm. individuals who are disconnected from the results of what they're doing. Yes, uh, so they act within the, 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 their actions have knock-on effects that go beyond the uh, the sort of what they're aware of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. <clears throat> which is the what was the second one in alienation? Uh, separation of the worker from the production. Exactly. Of the product. Exactly. And and from their from their colleagues, right? Potentially from yeah. the yeah, the impact once it leaves. Like so many things that can be uh, difficult to see, right? And this is where, you know, we talked about there not being many natural monopolies, right? And I'm saying, I my proposal for that was that the economies of scale are rarely as significant as the challenges of coordination. And so right. what I want to even propose is that um, it's the challenges of coordination that create alienation, right? Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. the bigger you get, the harder it is to see the impacts of your actions. But, and then, and that's actually bad for the company because the worker who is bored and sees no value in the work that they do is not going to be able to execute their work as effectively as someone who understands how each thing they do contributes to value or lack of value to, you know, whoever they're trying to serve. So um, if you if you had a company that was aware of that and was trying to kind of like the thing that comes to mind is the way that Silicon Valley, you know, does their like I visited uh, the Google office, not in Mountain View, but in one of the other in Irvine, cool. yeah. uh, because that's my, my brother in law works at Google. And uh, and, you know, the thing about it is it's such an awesome place, right? It's so much fun. There's yep. so many fun things to do. Yep. And what Google tries to do, and I think a lot of Silicon Valley places do this, is they try to maximize people's uh, interest in being in the office, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. we're going to provide you with meals yeah. Like, and they're going to be amazing because they're going to be from a, like a four-star chef or something like that, right? Like, yeah. um, and so what they're, what they're doing there is they're creating a barrier to entry maybe of another kind of organization that runs more uh, like old school. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, but what's interesting about that is that like, so a lot of the time people, a lot of the time people in their work care about um, like they want to take pride in their work, right? right. And they want yeah. to see the value in doing that. So I could imagine as a competitor saying, look, we're not into the frivolous nonsense that Google's into. Right. We're going we're gonna to live in this like austere work environment and we're going to be like buddy, buddy, and we're going to beat Google. Right. right? Uh, so it is, it is definitely, I can see it as a strategy of that kind, but I, I do think that there's, um, there's such a unique, uh, and this is maybe like part of like what Marx is highlighting is that there's such a unique value to be found in work, right? And mm-hmm. that um, this this knowing that you are contributing is um, is can be is just like the most 
can be the right. most powerful driver to your joy at work, right? Um, right. And I is, mean, is um, <clears throat> so is a company that excuse me, um, is a company that uh, finds ways to do that well. Um, you know, finds ways to make people feel like they're contributing well. Mm -hmm. That isn't, I guess, the same as creating a barrier to entry, or is it? Well, is I it mean, like I a, think is it, it does... a structural barrier to entry in the sense that, and now you've got to be a competitor who knows how to do this as well as we do. We've tried, you know, like maybe we're a company and we've done so many focus groups with our employees that we have figured out the best way to make people feel satisfied at work, which mm -hmm. leads to great productivity. Mm -hmm. And so we have that secret knowledge that you don't have. And you'd have Absolutely. to do focus groups. So no, no, I mean, I, I, but I mean, to me, that feels like that is a barrier to entry, but that's maybe the okay kind, if that makes sense, where, you know, it's the same as the skill, right? And so one of the things that I think is interesting, right? And so it relies a little bit on the assumption that a fully present, engaged workforce is more productive than one who's working under the whip. And, mm -hmm. um, but if, if you're willing to grant that any legitimacy, right, then the, the interesting thing becomes how do, you know, you mentioned before the guy who wrote the, the book, Bullshit Jobs, right? Yeah, David Where, Graeber. And, and to me, this, that's like an amazing illustration of alienation. And so I actually think that, um, so he's saying there's so many jobs out there that are accomplishing nothing. And I think that's probably partially true, but I think a right. lot of the time what's happening is those jobs are actually contributing some value, but they're so isolated and alienated that they don't see it, right? They don't right. understand how their work contributes to the larger picture, which can lead them to becoming bullshit jobs because they... Um, they misapply their efforts because they don't understand like what what is actually the good thing that I do versus you know right. what's not, and so um, so the question is how can a company where nobody even knows like the how any action they do contributes or doesn't contribute it's almost like their actions become random and maybe they contribute and maybe they don't and however many jobs are these bullshit jobs how does that company stay in business. Right. And, and so my proposed answer to that is barriers to entry, right? Like, right. That, oh, right? nice one. Right. And so, nice. and so the point there is to say, so barriers to entry are what keep shitty companies alive. And, and why, if we could reduce those, we would increase the competitive advantage of companies who knew how to um, create meaningful work. Right. right. So if there are if there are companies who can say, look, if you come work for us, you are going to understand exactly how what you do is contributing value and you yeah. are going to be in tune with your colleagues. Right. So an example from Toyota. Right. Anybody who works in that assembly line, they do cross training so mm. that everybody understands all of the different jobs so that when you're doing your job, you understand how that impacts the next yeah, guy, right? Yeah. And so you you then have this team mentality, right? Rather than this individualist one, um, mm. right? Uh, so the 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 contrast to that is when I worked in construction doing framing. Um, right. At the end, 
you do this thing called drywall backing, which is where you add these extra little pieces of wood that are not for the structural, anything structural in the house. They are the pieces that the drywallers attach to. And right. I remember when I first started, my putting up the wood was just like random. I did not understand right. <laughs> like right. how yes. it worked or like where they really needed to be and what was going to be helpful for the drywallers. Yeah. And then even by the end, once I understood what they actually needed, it was always the part of my job where I was like, oh, you know, it's like this is right. now I have to do yes. this work for the other guys. Right. Yes. Versus um, the situation at Toyota where they they work to ensure everyone understands the bigger picture so mm. they can more meaningfully or like mm -hmm. make decisions and be, and this, and this is the other thing, right? Is that they want, they want the process to be so transparent that the workers do have autonomy in what they do um, right. and in, in so far as they can make choices to that will improve results. Right. And they're not so just, so I have a, an example from a Parks and Rec episode that awesome. I, we, we literally just watched probably two days ago. And uh, I, whenever I think about capitalism, I think about Ron Swanson. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, Nick Offerman in general, I'm reading a book by him about uh, woodworking right now that is very, very enjoyable because yeah. he is kind of his character, just not exactly, right? Like he's quite progressive, uh, I think, in a, in a lot of ways, Nick Offerman, but he, as a, uh, you know, his character is less so, but they're, they're both very much, you know, kind of libertarian seeming a little bit, it seems like. Um, but anyways, in this episode, uh, <clears throat> the local art uh, video store, art house video store is being shut down. Yeah. Uh, and the uh, guy who is the, um, the guy who's the owner of it is actually played by uh, Jason... I can't remember his last name. Uh, starts with an S, and he's in uh, Rushmore, the Wes okay. Anderson movie. Oh yes, Jason Schwartzman. Um, Jason Schwartzman, nice one. Nice, nice. Hey, you're you're doing. I got the names. a name. It for really this episode, if, John will be doing the names. It, it it really helps if I have like half of it. If some, if you right. give me half, I'm much better <laughs> off. Yeah. So, anyways, he plays he plays the art house video store uh, rental guy, and uh, and it turns out that they're having to shut down because they cannot make it ends meet. Partly, they don't have any videos that anyone is interested in actually watching, right? Uh, and so uh, Leslie Nope, she's going to stand up for this little business and she's going to do a government bailout uh, of, of this business, right? And it's under, they have a whole bunch of different kinds of things that are going to like make it so that they have to do things that are good for the, for the local society. But she yeah. feels, you know, this is a, a heritage uh institution and they need to protect it yeah ron swanson is a hundred percent opposed to what they're about to do yep. and uh and he in fact goes to the government like to the municipal hearings about it the public hearings about it and just goes into it and basically he triggers a whole bunch of other companies saying well i'd like a bailout too and i'd like a you know yes um so anyways um you know ron swanson totally opposed just thinks this is very bad mm -hmm. um in the end, what happens is that the the art house does get its bailout, but they discover, okay, we're not making any money at this, and we need to figure out ways to make money. And so they end up becoming a uh, porn rental store yeah. <laughs> instead. Yeah. And they're making tons of money and are very, very busy. busy. Yes. And Ron Swanson, of course, thinks it's hilarious because he says his, his angle is this company was yeah. not 
doing what it should yeah because they just weren't of interest to the market and so mm-hmm. therefore they should have just been allowed to die yes um, yeah and then maybe something better would come up but it, it illustrates some of the issues right in terms of like yeah how if you don't have a very clear sense of what's the role of something like an art house video video rental mm-hmm. uh in the larger society mm-hmm. how, how do that how does it feed into things and feed out of things mm-hmm. then uh that's maybe a place where you start needing wanting something like government intervention uh, yes. but actually that that seems like it's not as like, wouldn't it have been better to say okay actually what we're going to do is we're going to figure out how to make this art house video store more relevant to mm-hmm. the the public not necessarily by starting to rent out you know boring or not sorry exciting you know marvel movies or whatever mm-hmm. um but maybe by finding other ways that you can become a value to the broader society. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, yeah. yeah, no, no. I mean, so so just like a couple of interesting things there. So let's just say, so they do the bailout, right? And then, I mean, even imagining they continue with this like art house angle, right? And I mean, so the, the idea is that we want them to be contributing this beautiful thing of art house cinema, right? But they're not because if people were getting art house cinema from them, then they wouldn't be going out of business, right? So really their their presence, if they continue and they have no customers, it's symbolic. It's not actually contributing what we want it to be contributing, right? Now let's say there's another art house cinema company that has an idea, a very clever idea on how to... Um, show people the value of these um, of these harder movies, right? Right. And now they can't get into the market because they're competing mm-hmm. with this other boring art house cinema place that uh, is getting government subsidies. Right. So, I mean, it is it is very it's very difficult. But I guess, and this is a great example of where uh, I think that you really want to understand the economic principles because a lot of the time the intervention does not have the impact that you want right i mean the most famous example and it's not like it's not rock solid but is the idea of um is um rental uh limits right so where the government Mm. says we're going to put a limit on how much the greedy um landlord landlords are allowed to charge And so then what that immediately does is one, it eliminates the incentive for landlords to do upkeep on the places because they can't charge more for the place being better. Right. Um, And so then suddenly they, you turn greedy landlords into greedy slumlords. Right. And then you also disincentivize, right? So the, the only way uh, landlords can uh, charge so much is if they have the barrier to entry of like um, unique access to a resource, which would be housing. So if the housing is really a limited resource, then uh, then you end up with uh, the landlords have much more power to you know raise the the prices. Right? It becomes this um, that's their competitive advantage, and then. Uh, so if you put the limits on the rent, then all of a sudden what you've actually done is you've taken away any motivation for somebody to build new housing units. And so what you end up with is um, 
housing might be cheaper, but it also might not because in the long run, creating more housing would have potentially decreased the price, uh, but you end up with lower quality housing that is very hard to get. Um, right. And, uh, and, and it, there's, yeah. Is, is the like, cause I can see how that it, it's, it, I, I guess the part of the, the thing that's confusing is that it's mm -hmm. like, I can see how that makes sense in a certain context, mm -hmm. but then in, um, you know, so, so generally, you know, if you, it, let's say we were just talking about one kind of, uh, residential housing market and mm -hmm. and that's what they're trying to they're duplexes mm -hmm. let's say we're, we're trying to get duplexes out there yep but something like uh housing for homeless people right mm -hmm. like that could be seen as being bad because it's like impacting what everything that you just said right like it, it's it's uh you're you're creating houses that are just for people it's going to be free kind of thing. I guess it's a limited market though. Mm -hmm. And so maybe there wouldn't be as much anxiety over like, Oh, that's, you know, carving out part of the market space kind of thing. Um, like yeah. How do you, how, how do certain people get access to it? Like how, how mm -hmm. do art house rental, like, do you remember sneak preview video? Oh my, do I ever the best video store in Edmonton? Yeah. So wonderful, so sad that it doesn't exist anymore, but they only yeah. had VHSs and nobody has VCRs anymore. Yes. Um, but like, how do you get something like Art House uh, into a market that doesn't necessarily uh, have appetite for it? Um, well, again, I guess my question is, what is the value of having it there if people aren't going to use it? But not everyone will use it. Some right. people will though, right? right? Like, and and the same with housing. No, not everybody uh, wants low income. I mean, everyone mm -hmm. wants low income housing mm -hmm. in the sense that I, you would like to pay less probably for your for where you're living. But right. there are some people who need, you know, radically low income housing. So, so the, the that one seems so with the radic. So the you always want to assess the 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 consider the potential impacts of an intervention right and so that's where i do this this notion of there are clear requirements for an effective market and then there are also drawbacks potential drawbacks of an intervention but um and so you need to always be balancing those and mm -hmm. so i don't think there's any ideological answer right and that's where you have ideally you want um, good policy wonks assessing this stuff. And you also need some sort of a government system that lets you test stuff and mm. get rid of uh, stuff that doesn't work, right? Because um, you, you're not going to be able to just design effective policy because the who knows what's going to happen when it hits right. the real world. But right. yes. so I guess just my answer is I have not heard... Um, builders um, or developers in Edmonton being concerned with Edmonton's housing first program. And I don't right. know if you know, like Edmonton was one of the first places in the world to start just giving housing to homeless people. And oh, it has wow. been uh, shown to be like the idea being housing first, right? There's so many mm -hmm. issues you have to address, but you cannot address those issues until they have a stable place to live. Yeah. And uh, Edmonton is was 
I maybe even the first place to start doing this. And it is now globally recognized as the leading best cool. practice for eliminating homelessness. Of course, we've had <laughs> all kinds of government cuts to the funding for that, but so it's not, right. uh, it's right. not as effective as it once was, but, um, my, my uncle or my wife's uncle Jim, yeah, uh, has been posting a bunch of stuff on Instagram recently of like people living in homelessness or living on street level, um, uh, you know, and having a photo of maybe where they're living and his hashtag is not the MLS, like, like not, is it MLS? Isn't that what realtor.com? Oh, it's like the, uh, yeah, yeah, multiple listing site or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, real. So it's like not the MLS, you know, that this is not the homes that you think of, right? Yes. Like yes. But people have to live I, yeah. in these sorts yeah. of situations. Um, um and, and okay, so that, well that's that's good to that's good to be aware of. I guess would there be places where that would be of concern? Like do people push back against things like Habitat for Humanity and so, so the so the interesting thing is, is that um, there is massive pushback against Habitat for Humanity, and it does not come from uh, from business. It comes from NIMBY, right? It comes oh, from comfortable, oh yeah. Oh yeah. wealthy uh, yuppies who don't want change in their neighborhood, and they think their nostalgia is identifying with real value, which, I mean, it's probably a little bit tricky to think about what elements of consistency in your home are part of real enchantment in your life. Right. Um, but perhaps uh, there's a, yeah, so, so the, uh, the housing issue is an interesting one because, um, oh no, what's his name? Matt Iglesias. So Matt Iglesias, he's, uh, he writes a, um, a newsletter called slow boring. He's, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, and he, his biggest, the area he has written the most about is housing. Right. Mm, and it's this interesting. interesting thing where the left finds itself in conflict with itself most often. Right. And, um, and the uh, people who have very nice homes maintain high values for their homes and get rich off of them by creating barriers to entry mm. um, through government lobbying the government mm. to prevent um, builders from being able to create to increase the housing supply mm. right and um, and this is a problem everywhere you know most notably in like San Francisco is super famous right. for it but um it's super it's super common everywhere and it's actually interesting in edmonton i don't know why but for whatever reason the the municipal government here has stopped uh has just decided these um rich homeowners lobbying them are not in the right and have just started creating a lot of rules that make it mm. easier to increase density and increase housing. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was know, at a public consultation forum once about uh, infill. Right. There was yeah. Tons of people there. Lots of people though, who are quite passionate in yeah. support of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah. So, so that's, um, uh, so to say I, yeah. And I guess, I guess the key thing is, is not, I don't think many, if there's no opportunity for profit, then the then businesses are 
not as likely to be quite as heated about the intervention, right? So when you're right, giving right. homes to homeless people, you are not uh, you're not cutting in on the market for those people. Just right. like, um, uh, but but at the same time, that's not to say uh, conservatives or capitalists they might also say they might have issues with it on other grounds other than grounds, yeah. Um, bootstrapping but, grounds or yeah exactly like those sorts but of things yeah but i also think a lot of them um like who would say you know this is actually an okay example especially because there's so much evidence behind the housing first program right i mean um right. i don't know like medicine hat is uh they is, have all hell for a basement yeah that? that's right well and um which is a uh rudyard kipling line originally oh, really yeah Oh, very interesting. Um, they they have eliminated what they call chronic homelessness, which just right. means someone who's um, stuck living at street level, right? So they yeah. have people who become homeless, but then they have the services available to get them, yeah, uh, yeah. into a, into a house into a house, a place yeah. to live. Um, so so because of that evidence, I suspect you'd find all but the most ideological capitalists might be okay with it. I'm not totally sure, you know. Right, right. Um, now, so that was... That's that's interesting. I think, you know, in terms of barriers to entry, mm -hmm. that you brought it back really well because I think that's so much of barriers to entry, the bad aspects of it has to do with um, how can we preserve ourselves with the least effort Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. the thing about a barrier to entry that comes up, like some of these barriers to entry that are more structural, right, yep. that are more just like, you know, oh, you have a great work, you know, all of your staff are just super experienced and good at what they do. That kind of barrier to entry is something that invites uh, creative competition, right? Absolutely. Like in the sense that yep. like, okay, well, then we just have to think of a better way to get around that. Like, how mm -hmm. do we, but like, if, I mean, I guess you could steal the... <laughs> the other people but oh, is that bad oh no 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 that's that would be allowed right so the question is so it's something you... like you know in contracts where it says like a non-compete contract where mm -hmm. you have the clause that says you cannot do work like this for the next X two years. years yep that is apparently very difficult to enforce because oh, yeah. you're basically like destroying the person's livelihood if they quit right right but i've often like thinking earlier i was thinking is that a barrier to entry that is sort of not as legitimate because it's like you're saying, if you leave this company as a super experienced person, mm -hmm. if you try to do this work mm -hmm. uh, elsewhere in the next couple of years, mm -hmm. we're going to actually sue you or make you. Well, I think, to. I mean, so again, I think it's a little bit complicated, right? So same with just like patents are great in theory, how they get applied is tricky. And right. so with this one, right, you are potentially releasing all like you're giving them so much of your competitive advantage potentially by like what how you train your staff the contacts they get through your company right contacts right. can be a huge competitive advantage right a barrier to entry right. um and so you know if people are just showing up taking everything you have to offer and then moving on um you know on on one hand it's okay because it is motivates you to be treating your staff well, right? And so that's right. like one of the good things about low barriers to entry. But then on at the same time, it's also um, you potentially failing to reward companies for the creative background work, right? And as like 
creative people who I, I know like people who are like interested in design, right? Like those are, it's so hard to get paid for that work because it's so easy to steal. Right. Right. So, yes. yeah. yeah. So again, yeah, I, I, there's not um, a straight up, this is good or this is bad. I think it's another one of those kind of a little bit complicated examples. Um, but if you were able to deal with some of them, right. Yeah. Then, uh, then you might be able to, like, like, yeah, exactly. It's okay. Where people are getting um, screwed over. Yeah. Because people just are doing things that they shouldn't do, right? Mm -hmm. Like stealing something, stealing intellectual property, mm -hmm. right? The, the problem, or even copyright, you know, talking mm -hmm. about copyright, someone can use something that's in the public domain. And mm -hmm. that's great, because then there's lots of different ways that people are doing it and that kind of mm -hmm. thing. But if the person who was the original creator of it, wasn't sort of adequately compensated for the fact that they created mm -hmm. it. Exactly. Then that exactly. seems like kind of unfair. Yes, right? but, absolutely. But the current copyright laws are also unfair because mm -hmm. they're like, now it's like, what, well, you know, like this person did come up with this idea, but they're just one person. So, you know, or why did should, they, is or the did person they? who actually came up with it dead, however many years ago, That's right. That's you know, right. yeah. and, or, or like was in distress and sold their copyright for a low amount of money. Yeah. All kinds of, um, so the last one I just want to touch on because it's like, uh, um, oh, oh no. So I guess I want to highlight. So when you are thinking about what barriers of to entry are good and which are not right. And, um, again, remembering, just try not to say this too often, but this is my understanding. Uh, sure. And, but so this notion of like anti-competition, anti-monopoly law, like these laws that are about regulating anti-competitive behavior. And so if your work is about uh, making yourself better, if that, if your actions are creating barriers to entry because you're so good, those are that's okay those seems seem okay that seems yeah okay. exactly yeah. if if you're uh, creating barriers to entry where you are uh trying to harm somebody else or make it more difficult for them then that's not okay and i think there's going right. to be a lot of gray in there but that's so it's not as though we've provided an easy way to answer these things just like wikipedia said right there's a lot right. of gray but then so those but those are the two things you want to be thinking through as you're assessing any sort of like particular barrier to entry yeah. and how that works and then the last one i just want to mention very briefly is this notion of um or, or is the law around um, becoming a beer brewer in Alberta? Oh, so this right. is like, I find it like Albertans to be sometimes frustrating in their their suggestion that we are conservative, right? But then, because, well, and, so and I don't, I mean, and in- and Having I, lived in Ontario for a while, I, I know how people think about Albertans. Right. And it tends to be a fairly broad brushstroke. Yeah. Whereas I, I think that there's a lot of diversity here. Well, so, uh, yeah. And I mean, in Edmonton. Unless you're right, about to say that that's not true. Well, no, no. <laughs> I, I guess, I, I guess, I think I'm, what I'm saying is kind of sideways to that. It's even the people who self identify as conservative, but are so used to expecting things from the government because we've had so much money from oil. Mm. Right. And like just the fact that we, 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 a lot of people call themselves conservative, but so much of what happens in Alberta is not. An example of this is the government regulation on 
alcohol production, right? So uh, it's actually changed. I think so uh, until recently, you could not get a license to brew and sell beer unless you were brewing a million liters a year. Holy right? smokes. So so think about how great it is to be an alcohol producer in Alberta. You've got right. no competition, right? right. Whereas in um, all the other provinces, the minimums are like, some of them are as low as 50 liters a year. Right. 50, yes. right? Yes. I could become a, 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 a little beer brewer, right? And get that started, right? Like test my product, get it yes. out there and do that. Yes. And so that's just like, um, and- you know, at some so how point, did craft how did craft brewers come on the scene? Well, so so that that the million liters is lower now, so it okay. has been decreasing. But there are it's still much harder to become a craft brewer in a, as a craft brewer in this province. There is a minimum, and any all these new beer places ha- have just managed to overcome that barrier to wow. entry through investors wow. or whatever. But um, it's just a and and so this. This is an example of where at some point someone justifies regulation because, you know, they want to be able to effectively oversee this. And I and I totally get that. Right. As we've said, how how do you enforce these various things? Right. And ensure laws aren't being broken and regulation Mm -hmm. is important. Mm -hmm. But then you can also see how those regulations can. create these major barriers to entry. And I guess maybe right. I'll even go a little further to talk about in my job, we're often trying to help people make better decisions by getting them good information. And right. then to get that good information, it's like somebody has to be, you have to have information about what's happening in this massive organization, which right. essentially then comes down to forms of data collection. Right. Right. So, so now you have people who are trying to do a job and then you're saying to them, okay, we want to know every time uh, you're out of towels, you know, whatever information it is that's important to you. And so now not only do they have to go and get towels, they also have to have their notepad on them where they check off, oh, we were out of towels. And then later in the day, they go and enter that data. And so there can be this massive burden of information collection right and so that's just to say um it is it is to make the point that there really is a burden to regulation right so yes when when we just offhand say oh this should be illegal this should be regulated etc cetera, etc cetera, the infrastructure required to implement and manage those regulations are incredibly burdensome and the crazy thing is is that it ends up benefiting the big existing firms because they have the ability they have the resources on yes exactly and they they can kind of like set that up in a way that where a new guy is it's going to be like that much more difficult for the new guy that that Um, was one of the things about uh taxes that the wikipedia article talks about is that mm -hmm. taxes are can be barriers to entry partly because larger firms have bigger tax accounting uh oh interesting it, wings it scales who are easily. able to figure out mm-hmm. ways to sort of you know maximize their uh, ability to avoid the taxes oh, right totally <laughs> right? and and this especially complex complex right. taxes right so that's one of the yeah. things you'll hear from uh like economists or capitalists is we 
you know, someone says, oh, well, we don't want to tax baby food because it's such an important thing, right? And so that we're going to make an exemption. So now, but now you've created the burden of tracking baby food purchases, right? That becomes this bureaucratic data collection thing. Right. And that, and, and it just gets so complicated so quickly that then, yes, it, it, and it advantages these people who pay the massive tax people. And so um, an economist and capitalist will favor saying, I understand you're trying to do good with this complex tax structure and all these potential exemptions, but you're you're actually just benefiting the tax firms and the the rich companies who can employ them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, I, I think we've sort of like done a good job of covering this first set I of barriers pretty, to entry. I think it is um, pretty thorough. I mean, in, yeah, maybe not meticulous, but we covered it. No, and, and I apologize if I, I felt like I had this art house thing going and then I got sidetracked by the housing question and I never came back to the art house thing. Uh, oh. Partly I got this amazing text right in the middle of our, uh, that my brother got published in this ma major magazine. So <gasps> I don't oh. know if he cares about me putting this in the, uh, in the uh, podcast, but I'm very oh. proud of him and, and excited for him. So. Oh, I am excited for him as well. That is very. So, so it ended up confusing me though. Yes. <laughs> yes. It so that I was like, wait, am I now I'm talking about housing? But <laughs> yeah, anyways, yeah, whatever. Yeah. This is just a, it's not a book. This is a podcast, right? That's right. No, that's great. So yeah, I think, um, and this is where I think understanding these issues, I think can be beneficial to creating a world that functions more the way we want it to. Um, right. But then I, I, so maybe in the next episode, we'll move in to talk about some of the issues that are maybe not addressed by traditional economists and where there are things that maybe should be considered barriers to entry that we should be acknowledging mm. and that might maybe just have a little more of a progressive flavor to them. Sure. Yeah. yeah. No, okay. Let's talk about that. So if anybody wants to uh, talk back or, you know, has things to add and barriers to entry that that we should have covered or that they, they think matter, uh, what should they do? Uh, they should email us at subjects in process podcast at gmail.com. Gmail <laughs> yes. Awesome. Subjects in process podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And we really uh, would love to, uh, to hear from you. We obviously, you know, the whole point of this is that we don't have the answers. And so the dream for me is to actually crowdsource information from anybody who can tell me about all the things I said that were wrong. That'd be great. Um, and yeah. uh, we'd love to hear from you, whatever you got to say. Awesome. Okay. Talk to you later, John. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. <laughs>